0: Our name is the Pod People, for we are many, and we are the world's most numerous podcast. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and I believe in slime and stink. Hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I'm putting on my Zoot Scoot. Ah, oh, fuck, I already fucked it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, uh, take two. Uh, hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I'm putting on my zoot suit to get zooted so I can boot scoot boogie with Pazuzu.
2: God damn! Wow, that was I... worth the second take. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm really the, the Angel play. of Death, Patrick Ewing. Wait, <laughs> no, no,
0: no, that's not right. I'm I'm Ben Sheets. And we are very excited to be joined by our friend, Sarah, who curated this episode. Thank you for joining us. Thanks
3: for having me. I'm Sarah, and I am not here to talk about Child's Play.
0: Oh, (laughs) excellent. Yes, we are this evening talking about The Exorcist 3 from uh, 1990, written and directed by By uh, William Peter Blatty Based off of his own novel entitled Legion He also wrote
2: the original Exorcist
0: Yes, the book and the screenplay uh, For William Friedkin's film Uh, And this film stars George C. Scott Ed Flanders and Brad Dourif And Jason Miller Uh, And it is about uh, Lieutenant Kinderman returning from the first Exorcist, investigating a series of murders from a uh, serial killer he believed long dead with some supernatural elements. Sarah, tell us a little bit about The Exorcist 3 and your relationship with it and why you wanted to come on the podcast to talk about it.
3: Well, this is the 30th anniversary of the release of The Exorcist 3. And I first saw it probably a year after it was released, uh, when it came out on VHS, when I was 13. And at the time, it terrified me. It was spooky, and I think the relig- it has a lot of religious iconography. Yes. And it has a lot of themes of distrust and possession and things that I found really spooky at the time. Plus, it has a couple of pretty sweet jump scares.
0: That it does. Uh, when's the last time you saw it before, uh, before this?
3: I want to say it was probably about 20 years ago. Um,
0: okay, wow. So it's been a really long time.
3: Yeah, it has. And at that time, my appreciation for it had changed a bit. But I have to say, like this viewing, I think I saw it from a completely different angle again.
0: Yeah, I was, I was gonna, that was gonna be my next question is like, how has it aged in your opinion? Like, does it still sort of like push some of those same buttons that it did the the first time you saw it or the last time you saw it? Or did it give you a, a, a new uh, understanding this time?
3: Very different understanding this time. A lot of the religious iconography was still, and especially in the first half, pretty creepy, but also really kind of surreal. It it does some world building in the first half, I think, that I really enjoyed and felt like was immersive. But a lot of the things I found very creepy when I was younger, I kind of found funny now. Um, (laughs) Some of it it, I recognized is more like um, tongue-in-cheek, like kind of kitschy. What I enjoyed most about it now was watching... George C. Scott, first of all, just really loved his performance. And- Killed yeah. it! Yeah. Oh my Explosive. god! Yeah. yeah, and his face is made out of amazing rubber. Like, he's got <laughs> the best facial expressions. And I um, and also really enjoyed watching the disintegration of his character, and I think like, sort of wished for some more richness in that part of the story, but really appreciated what was there.
0: I think for the rest of us, this was the first viewing uh, of The Exorcist 3. I don't... None of us have seen The Exorcist 2 either, is no. that correct? No. Um, I, uh, I did I did not feel lost, uh, thankfully. No. Um, the Exorcist 2 is kind of like a notoriously terrible movie, uh, very misguided in a lot of what it tried to do, from what I understand. And uh, Friedkin and Blatty have both notably disowned uh, any relation to the... F- even though they didn't make that, that film. Well, I mean, they, they named the... They, first off, they gave the demon a name... And they
1: called it Pazoo. pazoo So, like, <laughs> I, I think that says pretty much everything. At least that says everything I need to know about the movie.
2: Have you seen the original Exorcist, Cleveland? Oh, yeah. Okay, you have. Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. yeah, Ages back. Okay. I was curious to think about how this movie would hold up, you know... Without the perspective of the other. Without the perspective of mm-hmm. the other. Because I think for a lot of it it stands on its own. Mm-hmm. I think know? so.
0: Yeah. I haven't seen the original Exorcist probably since college at this point. So it's been years, so my like my memory is pretty foggy on like a lot of the specifics, especially outside of like the you know, the the most famous scenes. And I, I think this movie does stand on its own quite strongly, even though there's the return of of several of the characters from the first one. Um, I I did think it's interesting that while this film does not Contradict any of the events of The Exorcist Two. It also doesn't reference them at all. It does not acknowledge the <laughs> the, the existence of anything that happens in that film. Nope, not one mention of Pazuzu. So, i a little a little bit of background because uh, even though I haven't seen this before, I was reading about it uh, today before we watched the movie. And like the the production history of this film is is pretty interesting. Um, as we mentioned, it is uh, written and directed by uh, William Peter Blatty, who did uh, the, the the original Exorcist book and wrote the screenplay for the original movie. And he did not really intend for this to be a Exorcist sequel, though it had some of the the same recurring characters. He really wanted it to sort of be a standalone thing. And his original screenplay did share the same title as the book. It was just Legion. It did not have anything to do with exorcism. You know, it was more about this detective who has lost his faith being confronted with, like, evil and having to struggle with his beliefs and also the acceptance that, like, supernatural evil exists. And when he released or when he finished his first cut, the studio said, well, well, no, mm, there's not an exorcism in it, though. And we want we want this to be the Exorcist three so we can sell more tickets. So they uh, went back and did a bunch of reshoots and additional stuff, and uh, spent four million dollars on uh, the final five minutes of the movie, the exorcism scene. Bladdy is not a big fan of uh, the theatrical version of this film, uh, nor are the actors who took part in it, George C. Scott and Brad Dourif. They all consider the original to be a more well-contained, developed story, and that the addition of a thrown-in exorcism actually hurts the film. So I think that that was a, a very interesting perspective going into this movie, to kind of, like, try to find those disparities, like, what is the core story and what was addition and what was reshoot. And for the most part... I felt like I could spot those things pretty well. There's some things that, like, stand out from the movie in kind of, like, a tonally disparate way. What do y'all think?
2: My thoughts particularly on the, you know, final exorcism scene. I'll save until we, you know, really get into that. But I think tonally, like, the movie is pretty consistent up to that, you know, final 30 or so minutes where it really <laughs> goes places and takes a left turn. But that being said, I like the left turn it takes. I think that stuff is fun. This is going to sound like a complaint, and it is not. If anything, it's something
1: I loved about it. But the the first portion of the film, I think, would would have worked if you had just removed the... The actual shots and just utilized it as a radio drama it's so dialogue heavy mm-hmm. um and now i now when i say worked i mean i mean it would still function like you would still be able to track mm-hmm. everything that's going Let's on say. because everything is built around the dialogue the majority of the time the shots what we are seeing has little to do with the information we're being given it's largely just like uh religious iconography and imagery but that said it is gorgeous iconography and imagery and uh it it enhances what
2: we're hearing. It has a novelist's fingerprints all over it. Yes. Understandable. Yeah. Yes. You know, I think, uh, especially the very long extended scenes of Brad Dureth you know, doing... His monologues. His his monologues. Fantastic. If they had been delivered by a lesser actor, it would have felt
1: so exposition heavy, but because he's so compelling, like, it's great. I was hooked the whole time, and just like, really feeding in on his story.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, Brad Dourif just continues to be one of my favorite horror character actors. I think that he is just, like, such a powerhouse, and especially when you get him and george c scott in this movie it's like i was absolutely blown away by the character drama in this and just like how incredible these actors are
2: yeah i absolutely love george c scott's performance in this you know the explosiveness of when he (laughs) will just scream at people yeah it's it's just Yeah. yeah It's so
0: perfect. And... Well, he's in he's in emotional turmoil through yeah. most of the movie, you know? Like he's he's investigating these murders that appear to be committed by a killer that went to the electric chair and, and like people that he knows and loves are the victims of of this. And it's like his frustration in how little this makes sense, like from a detective's perspective to, you know, really try to find the logic in these crimes, and then he just can't do it, and, like, his, he's just so frayed and worn, and I think that he does, like, George C. Scott does such a fantastic job of portraying that, like, there's just, like, so much nuance and how he's able to, like, very rapidly go through different emotions. A great example is... Uh, when he's in, like, uh, the hospital administrator's office, and he's, like, arguing with, like, the head of the hospital, and within the span of a few seconds, he goes from uh, screaming to crying to then completely calm and collected to then enraged. Just boom, 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 boom. And he pulls it off so masterfully. It's like trying to juggle that many emotions at once is not easy at all. that's and, one of my
3: favorite scenes i love that oh it's scene. so yeah. good
1: yeah. i love his like gravelly voice too <laughs> like he's <laughs> just it sounds so like Tired and angry uh, Yeah I love it Like he he just Knocked it out of the park And
3: the way that he's Like barely holding it Together So he'll be speaking Relatively calmly Trying to Like follow A logical process And then He'll just explode
0: Yeah -hmm. He just like All of a sudden Will reach the end Of his fuse And just boom And then pull it All together again Yeah yeah, it, like, that's that's so much of the movie, and what I love, too, is, like, especially in the beginning, he has a kind of, like, quality to his performance that reminds me of almost like an old, uh, like, film noir detective, yes. like a Humphrey Bogart Definitely. kind of character, yeah. like the way he delivers his dialogue and kind of this up and down that he does, uh... Like one of one of the lines that I made I made note of uh, at the beginning that I just love so much is like uh his his friend uh Father Dyer tells him, like, Okay, well you should go home. He's like, I can't go home. I'm a cop.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's so larger than life. Yeah. Like yeah. how he flashes his badge at the movies to get in. He's right. Like, official, <laughs> <laughs> official business. Official <laughs> business. <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> his banter with the, the priest in the first like 20 to 30 minutes, is so film noir, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just rapid fire back and
0: forth, just snarky as hell between the two of them, and it's just so perfect. Yeah, it's a really interesting relationship that he has with Father Dyer, because, like, after the events of the first exorcist and, like, the death of his friend Father Karras, he doesn't believe in God or anything anymore, but he still has this close friendship with these priests and so much of like that is balancing very finely on like his his respect for father dyer but also his belief that like father dyer's certainty that you know like he he says that like we're we're spirits we will live forever and like you can just see that that kinderman has so much disdain for that because he doesn't believe it I mean, it's kind of a, a classic... The, the classic demonic possession story is like the non-believer to be confronted with the antithesis of like his belief. Like, have it, having to come around to believe in God because if the devil exists, then that means God must also. His sort of coming to belief through witnessing supernatural evil. It's nothing new, but this movie is one of the best handlings of those themes, I think, that I've seen in a long time. The surreal dream sequence. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about, like, setting setting an interesting tone, because little little happens i think like in the first you know 30 or so minutes of it's the it's slow film, that yeah it's, it's that slow. Is like super like immediately like read as supernatural or strange right up until that dream sequence i was even wondering if we were going to see much supernatural stuff in the film which is cool that they can take the exorcist that world that they've built from the the previous films and set me up to still believe that they're like oh maybe like that's that's the route this film is going like a you know maybe a little bit more uncertainty and, uh, to then throw, throw us into that weird dream sequence, <laughs> like yeah. with all sorts of like weird, like strange actors, cameos, but it's all framed. Uh, it, it sort of reminds me of like the, uh, the, like the Raphael, um, what is it called? The, the congregation of like the scholars, um, like painting. I know, I know the name of it and I'm, uh... Well, you're the only one. Yeah, this is a the, reference know, that nobody else understands. The, the way it's shot is just spectacular. It really does feel like an old fresco. Uh, and also, like, all the tarot imagery throughout yeah, the film. Mm, like, yes. throwing in the occult mm-hmm. as well. Because, like, I don't think in The Exorcist we see too much occult imagery. It's it's largely just, just Christian themes. And here, we're, we get we get several instances of the tarot. And not just the tarot cards, but we see, like, iterations of, like, Christ portrayed as the hanged man. Mm-hmm. And a few other, like, smaller instances where we do get some of that... That nice like like occultism, uh, occultism themes as well like like showing like the interplay of like the associative demonic imagery too it's neat it was mm-hmm. some neat stuff because inversion is a big thing mm-hmm. uh, sorry I just I just thought about that. <laughs> yeah. sorry that that just came to me because like uh, like the tumbling down the stairs it's
0: almost like it's thematic <laughs> oh, <laughs>
2: themes fun man well the cameos in that dream sequence we there's a lot you of have up. to mention because they're absolutely wild.
0: Yes, you know. we have uh, Fabio as an angel, uh, and I, I think he he's standing next to Peter Ewing, or is Peter Ewing? No, a Peter div-
2: Ewing is the angel of death who's putting out the the tarot cards. Oh yes, uh, yes, yes. You know, basketball legend, superstar, Hall of Famer, Patrick
0: Ewing. Patrick Ewing uh, yeah. with the big black wings. And uh, Sam Jackson is uh, in that scene as well, but his voice is dubbed over, so you would, (laughs) for the (laughs) one line he has, like... (laughs) You would miss it if you're not if you're not looking for it, uh, and I didn't notice it either. Uh, but I did see that in the the scene where uh, Kinderman and Dyer go to the diner after the movie, Larry King is in that scene, <laughs> and, and also see Everett Coop, the Surgeon General. Oh my like, God. there's so many absolutely left wing bizarre little celebrity cameos in this movie I don't understand it so okay
1: I, I I pulled up the painting and I think it'll give a little bit more context uh, maybe i'm I'm pulling this from The Void, but, uh, okay. okay, so here's, here's the School of Athens painting, oh, uh, the School of Athens
0: painting, so our listeners kinda, cannot see right, this, very <laughs> visual
1: medium, right, uh, the audio it. podcast, you, you can fucking google it, uh, but anyway, uh, give them the title, at least, the, the School of Athens is the name of the painting, and, uh, or fresco, and, uh, it's full of scholars, like, throughout history, so it is all, it's, it is in the same way, sort of, like, a series of cameos of, like, different scholars and such, so, I, I don't know, I just, I got a lot of, do you want I to reference kind of the the, the
2: painter as well? Uh Raphael, Raphael. But yeah, I think uh I think the cameos are super fun. I almost think uh William Peter Blatty just made friends with all of these people <laughs> after the first exorcist movie. And we're what? Such disparate celebrities. Too. Exactly. Like male model Fabio, you know, Patrick Ewing basketball superstar, Larry King, like it's all over the place yeah <laughs> i think it's definitely by design
1: because we're we're in his dream and like our our dreams are often us trying to make sense of nonsense of just like miscellaneous data that we've taken in throughout the day and then our brain tries to like reprocess it and flush it all back out so we're just getting, like, whatever, like, tidbits of pop culture that he's, like, taken in at some point as his brain is just, like, trying to flush it all back through. And at the very end, we're getting, like, actual nuggets of, like, important information at the end, like, tied together. Maybe
3: he saw um, Fabio in that women's world daily. Oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, what I find so fascinating about that that dream sequence is that, like, despite the 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 silly celebrity cameos and be like ah look there's fabio ah there's samuel L. jackson ha 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 i still think that overall the effect of that scene is rather unsettling um Definitely. i i think tonally it's so yeah i mean it's it's very dreamlike uh but it's very it's very sinister as well it very nicely like reflects how Kinderman I guess kind of sees the the concept of heaven it's it's like a cathedral but also a train station but also a hospital and the angels are these very like generic almost artificial just, like, male models in white robes with big, fake, feathery wings. Mm -hmm. Everything is so out of place. Like, none of this stuff jives together. And what really sells that for me is, like, as he's walking through there, then, like, the young boy who's murdered by the Gemini killer at the beginning, like, comes up to him... And he's, you know, got stitches all the way around his neck because he was decapitated. And he's like, he's like, oh, hey, Lieutenant Kinderman. And uh, he's he's just like, he's like, oh, hi, Thomas. I'm sorry you were murdered. I miss you. (laughs) Like It's just just like so matter of fact. And then like to sort of have this premonition about like the, the death of Father Dyer and then to wake up and Father Dyer has been murdered in the hospital. It's creepy. It's spooky. A One of the things visitation. that sounds really
3: creepy about that is the idea that people have died and gone on to an afterlife and yet they're still bearing like the scars of the of the way that they died. So like, yeah. Father Dyer too has the staples in his neck that's, that they're holding his head on. Right. So, like even though you've Gone on to supposedly heaven, you're still carrying your trauma with you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the, like there's this, the there's like the the whole train station sort of motif that, like, there's there's a big board of, like, tra- you know, different trains going to different places that, like, it's not even really heaven, it's, it's like, limbo. Like, you're going to this weird hospital cathedral to, like, await being shipped off somewhere, and you're still bearing the scars of your death, and yeah. it's... So he's just uh, catching Father Dyer, like, on on the, the way through. Yeah, on the now. platform. Yeah, yeah, you're being yeah. sent
2: to your judgment. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh,
3: this is his vision, this faithless man's vision of of the afterlife.
2: Right. One thing I wanted to cover a little bit more was, uh, the stuff around Father Dyer's death. Oh, because yeah. Because I found that stuff super disturbing and really well executed. You might even say Dyer. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Ha-ha! Uh... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, uh, one of the, the big things with that is, um... All the vials of blood, you know, yes. laid out next to him. Oh, it is vile.
0: Oh, God damn it! <laughs> yes, uh, Father Dyer sorry, has sorry. been. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He's been uh, perfectly exsanguinated, right. uh, completely drained of blood, without a drop spilled, and all of the blood put into these. Jars arranged on the bedside table next to his body. Uh, yeah, I thought that was very creepy. Yeah, as I well. think imagery. <laughs> God damn it, Cleveland! <laughs> I don't even feel like I can go on because I don't know what I what I might say that will get sorry, that oh, will no. set him off. Three's good.
1: Three's good. Rule of threes. know, yeah, we're, we're all right. We, we, we can move past this now.
2: The jars are very creepy, though, because, you know, it's, like, all of his blood just sitting there. Yeah. And conceptually, like, without leaving any drops and his body just being sucked of all of the life out of him.
0: One of the things I think is, is very successful about this movie is that we don't actually see any of the murders. It's always the aftermath. In terms of, like, being... Gory or violent—it's not really. It's it the the horror is so much more like atmospheric mm-hmm. and, and 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 dread based. It's like we see sometimes the events leading up to a murder and the aftermath, but we never see the actual murder. One of my favorite sequences is when the other priest is murdered towards the beginning, when he's uh, giving confession to this old woman who we cannot see. It's just through the confession booth, it's just blackness, it's just darkness. And she starts confessing to the the murders of like the gemini killers victims and just starts laughing and there's something so creepy about like this frail old woman's voice like admitting and describing in graphic detail like this horrendous violence and that it sounded like the young girl possessed
1: in the first film. A little bit. Too. Mm-hmm. You know, that your mother's a you know, mm-hmm. stuff. Like it was that she takes on that same, you know, sort of like.
3: The graveliness, graveliness yeah. again. As she, yeah, as the description gets more explicit, mm-hmm. the voice gets more gravelly. Mm-hmm. I
2: think the isolation of the confession box is super creepy too, you know? Yeah. Like he's st- stuck in there. Right. You know, he hears what's going on on the other side and there's no escape.
0: Well, and that you know? that the murder happens in a church to begin with is like, you know, the the devil is not supposed to be able to enter the house of God, you know, like a church is supposed to be a safe place. Mm-hmm. And that, like, the the first murder that we, well, I guess the second murder after the the young boy who dies at the very beginning, like, the second murder is, like, in a church. It's like, ah, well, this is, uh, it it somehow sets the stakes much higher, I think. Oh, yeah.
1: And going back to with the, the jars of blood, you, I think you're getting a really nice point, Ben, with how obscure it is. Because, like, the fact that uh, Kinderman, like, has to ask what it is. Because it's just they're, they're they're laid out neatly next to it. You think it was like an orderly had just left like some samples down. Without the context, it seems like banal, and it's it's not until like it's explained to you that you get this like horrible revelation. It was just,
0: oh God, you know, like his George C. Scott's performance in that scene is so good too because it almost is if is as if he's still in that dream that precedes it. You know, like he seems to be having a hard time accepting that his friend has been murdered and, like, the way that he questions people when he walks into that room and is, like, asking things, it's, like, it's so deadpan. It's, like, it's it's the same kind of inflection that he has when he's in the dream and, like, I'm sorry, you were murdered, Thomas? I miss you, you know? It's, like, it's it's almost like the dream has seeped into the reality, uh, and and I think that that is something thematic that continues throughout the rest of the film too, because there's so much like weird, surreal, dreamlike stuff that happens. Past that, it's. Uh, I love how George C. Scott's character is ahead of the
2: audience when you know he's looking at the body because you know he looks over on the right side. We don't see what he sees, but he's clearly disturbed right. by it. And then he goes over to the left side, and it almost confirms his unsettling uh, demeanor. And later on, we realize that's because, you know, the Gemini killer cuts off the index fingers of his victims on the right hand and, you know, marks the Gemini symbol on the left hand. And the boldness to... Show that visually before you, you know, before the audience yeah, the knows what's yeah. Yeah, yeah what's like, going on. It's really a cool thing to do. Yeah, I'd like that.
1: Yeah. It'd be it'd be cool to rewatch that scene with that that context, like with that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, un- understand his thought process mm-hmm. during it. Like a, yeah. yeah, as he as he checks each each side. That, that's a great point, Ben. I think there it is.
0: Yeah, well, I mean it's it's what it's what is so disturbing to him because like he's just assuming that this is a a Gemini copycat killer, but the fact that the the MO is the same and is actually the opposite of the information that was released to the public shows like very specific insider knowledge that disturbs him so tremendously because the Gemini Killer was executed 15 years ago, around the same time that the first Exorcist takes place, around the same time that Father Karras died. I, I love that, like, we're not even introduced to the, the Gemini Killer until, like, probably what, like, halfway through the movie? Over halfway mm-hmm. through the movie? And then, like, just from from then on, it's like, it's just Brad Dourif chewing up the scenery, delivering, like, one incredible monologue after another, you know? (laughs) Like a novel, like you mentioned, Ben, you know, very uh, dialogue-heavy. That stuff is fantastic. I I think you mentioned that in the director's cut,
2: Jason Miller... Was doing a lot of the Brad Durf characters? No, 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 the opposite. opposite. Jason Miller
0: Miller is absent from the director's cut. When they originally shot it, he was busy working on some other project. And uh, so when they had to go in and do reshoots, uh, Jason Miller was available. So they were going to just like cut brad Dourif from the film completely and reshoot everything with just jason miller there's some conflicting information on the reason why they chose not to do that and to sort of have like these two personas sharing uh, a single body which i ultimately think is very effective and i'm glad they did it and tastefully done. yeah i think it's fine
2: I think yeah it's no, fine. i know i think it's great and like, i think
0: part of the reason
2: it works is because brad duriff gives such a fucking great for yeah i mean cutting it, you know? like, cutting him out cutting man. him
0: out would have been a huge mistake william peter blatty uh in, in interviews afterwards would say it's like oh well we thought it would be thematically interesting to like keep both actors and to have like brad duriff's gemini killer occupying the body of of jason miller's father karis so it's like the, the duality is interesting, and I agree with that, but Brad Dourif uh, actually says that that was not the case, and that the reason that they kept him, or they kept both of them, is because apparently Jason Miller had a really bad uh, alcohol problem, mm. and uh, he was, as uh, Brad Dourif described, too wet-brained to remember, <laughs> to remember those lengthy monologues. Oh, wow. So they they reshot the stuff with Brad Dourif and roasted and kept Jason Miller for the shorter lines, the stuff that he could remember. And uh, Brad Dourif is literally the only person on the production who who has said that. So I don't know the validity of that statement, but I think that the overall effect of having both of them and and having like kinderman see the face of this killer who's been dead for 15 years and sort of have it switching back and forth between that and his friend who has also been dead supposedly been dead for 15 years and we find out he's just been locked up in this asylum all the time i think it it worked like the the back and forth works really really well
2: yeah it's Mm -hmm. super disturbing and unsettling Mm -hmm. Especially,
3: I think like the first time that it happens, that the switch happens, yes, it's really jarring. I think before Kinderman can see the Gemini,
0: yeah, I think I think I so think too. He, he doesn't because he first. doesn't he doesn't react to it. Yeah. Um, and and I like that it's filmed in such a way that like the film doesn't seem to be reacting to it either. It's just all of a sudden it's no longer Jason Miller and it's just Brad Dourif now and i like how how jarring that it, that transition is and that the film doesn't try to immediately justify it oh, would, wouldn't it wouldn't have been great though if they would used like a 90s morphing effect oh yeah well <laughs> ap- apparently apparently in the final exorcism scene when they originally shot it it, they did do that. No. they did. Oh, they did no. have uh, 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 Brad Dourif's face shifting back to Jason Miller's and and back and forth. And uh, apparently that. Just did, something like the head spinning
1: thing, where then like it's, it's one head. Apparently, There's so apparently, many ways to do it. <laughs> There's so many great ways.
0: Apparently so that tasteful. that made it into a theatrical trailer for the film. Uh, I haven't seen it, but you can see that that face morphing effect in one of the trailers for the for the. Movie. Movie. well thank god they, but in they the cut they said out. they thought it looked too bad and so they so smart. they they cut it out completely <laughs> um well i th- i think another reason that like the duality and like the shifting characters works is because i mean the 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 original title of this film and the novel it's based off of is legion of course referencing the the biblical story of of jesus uh, uh exercising a uh a man who's possessed by a demon and when he asks the demon's name says we are legion for we are many and i've always thought that that idea of like many demons possessing a single form is very cool and creepy
1: right and the thing that like uh is often missed about that sequence is i think right after he says for we are many like he possesses like an entire like flock of sheep and then they all drown themselves it's a terrifying chapter like like in in the bible like it's it's super spooky
0: and i think that they play off of that so well in that brad dureth's voice is constantly changing throughout his monologues and some of that is obviously like audio effects But also, some of it is, like, Brad Dourif switching voices on the fly, which, similarly to, like, what I mentioned about George C. Scott's performance earlier, very impressive and hard to do convincingly.
3: And there are a couple of times where he does it, and you can tell that it's just him. And it is really difficult to reconcile the voice that you're hearing with the one you just heard. It's really dramatic. And it's,
0: it's great considering that, like... Before this, you know, like Brad Brad Durf is, is way so famous for is obviously Child's Play, which is just like exclusively a vocal performance mm-hmm. and that he has such an iconic recognizable voice. That is completely lost in this movie because he doesn't have just one voice; he has many voices. I did love the little uh, child's play Easter egg <laughs> yes. uh, when he uh, he is asked like how how are you uh, getting out of the cell to like murder people, and he says a child's play. <laughs> like that's uh, I, uh, that's such a a good little nod to those movies. Bunny doll. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the buddy doll. And and it also cuts from that to like a little red-haired boy. So yeah, I yeah, think that that's, that's it's that's like That's so true. It's like, "Oh, well, uh yeah, here's Chucky." <laughs>
1: Um I love uh when we're out, while we're on characterization too, I thought that the characterization of Father Dyer was was amazing. Uh they they did such a good job of like getting me to like him in a reasonably small amount of screen time. I always find that impressive, uh before they, they kill someone off. Um uh like <laughs> he he references space balls at one point, like you know, he says like may the Schwartz be with yes. you with someone, which is yeah. delightful. Uh He's reading like uh like a what, what was the, the
0: Women's name? Wear Daily? Women's Wear Daily. When like Kinderman comes to visit him in the hospital, like like uh
1: he he's hanging out with this like like this grizzly like l- lieutenant like noir detective figure, but he's the one who's smoking <laughs> yeah. and is like oh, they'll kill you and he's like yeah but quietly you know it's like it's like, <laughs> like for a priest that's like such a badass thing to and say talking and
3: talking about the kids with their lemon drops, he yeah. calls
1: them those little creeps. Those little creeps. Yes. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like you're just like oh man, I wish he was like my my like, priest I hate like taking like
3: confession from these little creeps,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, like just such a such a wonderful, compelling character, and uh, yeah, I, I i always love I always love like the 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 kind of edgy priest character that 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 that's always a, uh, one that's after my heart.
0: The cool priest, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the kind of priest that you can rap with. That's
3: right. <laughs> <laughs> well, something you mentioned about I, I wasn't familiar with the rest of that part of the biblical story, talking about him possessing like. The sheep, and then the way that the character is possessing other people as well. So that seems like a, almost like a continuation. Of- yeah, there's land, Yeah, this is the
1: slaughter. It
0: seems like he's it, he's not actually like leaving the cell to commit the murders. He's possessing the other uh the other patients in the the psych ward the other catatonic patients as he says uh through a, a nurse at the end uh the the catatonic are so easy to possess mm-hmm. so yeah it's like casting that will out and just like latching on to vulnerable people and like committing very gruesome murders through them. It's handled super well. I found it,
1: and it's, uh... yes, yeah, so, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about two thousand in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned.
0: That's fucking metalist. Yeah. The Bible shit. is fucking yeah. metal, man.
1: Like, like there's some crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's how the rest of that verse goes. There's wow. the chapter goes.
2: Can we unpack that uh, nurse scene a little bit more? Because I feel like that's one of the scenes where it takes a radical shift in tone
0: but yes. I still love it. I think it is super fun. You're talking about when uh, the, the demon sends the, the nurse. Or the, 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 the The patient yes. disguised as the nurse to go kill uh, Kinderman's daughter. Yes. That's a very interesting scene. The only one I would describe is like hokey. Well, that. Uh, Well, okay, okay. uh, Right
1: uh, now, well, okay, that's that's like anime, yeah. Like, okay, I I have points on that too. That's uh, the thing. Like, Like,
2: I think this movie radically shifts tone from that point to the end. And you know, I think in the director's cut, it avoids some of that. Some of that, you know, there's still some of the the weird catatonic.
0: It's th- that <laughs> scene. Is tough, but... That scene plays out pretty much the same in both versions, but I think that like the surrounding context of each version sort of like changes how it works. It definitely is a little bit hokey, uh, particularly that one specific shot. And she pulls out like the big like bone cutting shears or whatever, and tries to to snip off uh, Kinderman's daughter's head. Julie's
3: head, yeah. And there's that
0: very like quick sped up shot of the grandma like grabbing Julie by the hair and pulling her neck out of the the blades as they snap shut. That's, think, that shot is so weird. If, I can't. If more shots if it had
1: been like that, if there had been some lead up and it was more like concrete in the scene, I think it would have been unsettling and strange. But instead, it was just weird and kind of funny. But yeah, it's like, it's like they're like cartoon shears almost.
2: And uh, I love the shears. It's I it's think, great. Like, like it is fun, but it, it is it's goofy. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get back to the shears in one of my favorite scenes, the jump scare scene. Yeah, um, but the the shears near the end in that scene they are very strange because it almost feels stop motion in that like she's pulled but it's a very controlled pull yeah. away from the shear
0: and and i think i think the shot is sped up as well to make it more like kinetic it's hard for me to like put my finger on what would have helped make that moment less weird i think I think you might be right, Cleve. That maybe some more coverage would have yeah, helped. Yeah, more
1: lead-in. Like, like if her like pulling the the shears back, and like there had been some of, like some of the other cutaways, you know, yeah, had because been, it's like, like slowed
0: down and sped up, would we we would have ramped into that. Because it's like we get we get the shot of her pulling the shears like out of her bag under the table, but then it goes like directly to like, the grandma, like, grabbing her hair and pulling, and then the shears are already, like, around her neck. It's like it goes from under the table to, like, around her neck in just, like, the span of a couple of cuts, and yeah. it does, it just feels... A, a cut. Yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> cut, uh, cut, oh, snip, okay. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it totally doesn't fit super well, but I feel like it catches you off guard in such a way that I think it works. At the same time. I enjoy I it. I fun, laugh. I thought it was you know, fun. It's, yeah. a, it's
1: a fun scene. The thing that has me very confused about it is that looking at the director's cut, this was the climax in yeah. the director's cut. In that respect, I'm quite glad we get we get a little bit more content because I just don't feel like there was enough in that scene, and I, I know that probably makes me sound like the producers who, you know, were, were pushing back a little bit, but in that respect, I think they might have been a little right. Like... I
2: love the exorcism scene, and I think we should wait to talk on that until, sure, we you know, the end, mm-hmm. but I think that scene is great. Totally, it doesn't fit the rest of the movie super well, but I don't mind that. So I don't mind a left turn, you mm-hmm. know radical shift in tone, yeah, let's put a footnote on that and go back and talk about some of the the other scenes before the end of the movie. yeah, <laughs> uh, one scene I really want to talk about. I mentioned it just a minute or so ago was the jump scare scene the yes the the famous jump scare the hospital scene this very extended sequence of you know this this nurse in the hospital
0: yeah like hearing these weird noises and it's most of it is done in, like, one take, like, one just, like, very long static take of her, like, down at the nurse's station at the at the end of the hall, and, like, getting up and walking around and, like, listening for, like, where these sounds are coming from, and, you know, she goes into a patient's room and has... There's a fake-out jump scare there where, like, a patient, like, wakes up suddenly and startles her. And then it goes back to that, like, that same static shot. hearing down the hall. And her going back to the station, the, the nurse's station, and, like, the security guard coming back, and then another security guard coming in and, like, changing shifts. And it's just, like, very slow, but it's silent and tense, and you have no idea what to expect and then she gets up to investigate another weird noise, goes and looks in another room, turns around and then just dramatically this like white robed figure comes out with the shears and just like snip <laughs> and it, like punches in on it. It's uh, it- it's hard to like describe the effect of it without like seeing it. I really like it. I I love it. it. I think think in modern times,
2: you know, we're so desensitized to the jump scare in that, you know, whenever there's a slow moment in a horror movie, we expect a jump scare. right? But I think it's extended to such in the sequence
0: that it still catches you off guard when it happens. Yeah, it goes for such a long time and you know that something is coming, but there's so there's so many moments where you think it's gonna happen and then it doesn't. There's so many fake outs that when it does happen, it's it still completely takes you by surprise. Well and it's you're... still within
1: the same shot too. Like, yeah. like it's all like within the same framing. It's surprising, but it's not like right up in your face. It's it's
0: well the camera punches in when it it happens so like there's there's that sharp movement yeah
1: it does it does end on that but like when he first pops out of the door like we're still down the hall yeah like like for that that for the jump you know before it like it zooms in uh and i I do i do appreciate that about it like like we are like we get to see the the whole the soul sequence staged um and it's all very clear Mm -hmm. uh to us and uh there's no like quick cuts it does you know, such like, a great job. It doesn't, it doesn't job. cut away to the to the scare. Like we just we just get a place to. It does
2: such a great job of building tension as well. Mm. You know, during that scene where like a lot of jump scares nowadays, people will just you know be like, "Okay, I know there's a jump scare coming." They're so cut to the chase. Mm. You know, it, it's not like there's tension in the same way. You know, there's a jump scare going to happen, but at the same time it's that dread of knowing the characters in danger and knowing that you don't know what the danger
0: is or
2: when it's going to happen.
0: Well, it's just,
1: and also the, the jump scare is not the pure intent of it. Like it it is not, the scene does not exist just to scare you, which is probably the biggest annoyance of most modern jump scares too. like, it, it's it is there just to be scary because we're watching a scary film. Here, like it it's, it serves plenty of utility. It gives us a lot well, more information. I
0: think the different like I think the utility is to scare you, but I think the difference is that it's not, the utility is not to to simply startle you mm-hmm. like a lot of jump scares are. You know, we talked about this uh, a few episodes ago when we talked about Alien and how, okay. like, the jump scare of the Xenomorph attacking Dallas and the Air Ducts. Is so, is effective for the 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 very same reason that you know something is coming, but it almost makes like feints to like psych you out, and that when it finally happens, it's not in the moment that you expect it to be. You you can you can anticipate it, but it's like falsely telegraphed, which I think is much more effective because modern horror films and modern jump scares are very easy to spot coming and they feel lazy and it's like okay well what did this what purpose did this serve other than that it startled me and it got my heart rate up it didn't like it didn't scare me in a a meaningful way
1: sarah what sort of
0: sequences you
1: felt still held up to that test of time and still scared you in the same way were there any
3: that was one that actually because i always loved the final jump scare in that scene Mm -hmm. and there is that like the almost like clinical observer of the camera throughout most of the scene. And then and it kind of switches to the nurse's perspective when she goes into the patient's room, but then yeah. goes back.
1: Clinical and, in every way. We're yeah, in a clinic.
3: Yeah, <laughs> in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so this time, knowing that was coming, actually I did get startled more by the original one when the patient pops up. Oh, yeah. Because I had forgotten that part. So I was waiting for this jump scare. That's I, <laughs> I really still... That's probably the most, um, like, viscerally frightening scene, I guess. And I was wondering when I was watching it what makes it so effective. And I think one thing is I don't believe there's a soundtrack during that.
0: No, it's silent. Yeah, Yeah. it's
3: completely silent. So there's no, like, musical cue of any kind either. There's
0: a sting... On the punch in, when the camera zooms in on it, there's there is an accompanying musical sting. But other than that, yeah, that whole time there's like nothing to it's it's
3: hint at when it's coming.
0: It's silent, and And I think
3: prolonged.
0: I think if anything that silence is kind of what like telegraphs that something is coming but just like the the building anticipation of it how long it makes you sit there waiting for something to happen like that's what so effectively like really builds that sense of dread I think you're you hit the nail on the head with the silence Yeah there's there's a lot of cool plays with sound design yeah. in this film uh one of
1: my favorite little nods, and it might be a little heavy-handed, but I, I kind of liked it for that. Was when Kinderman is uh, in the the church, and he hear like he's hearing all the strange noises, and the lights are flickering. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear some of that that like classic exorcist like demonic whispering, and I think at some point it says it starts by like whispering like Espiritus Sanctus, and then it becomes like Espiritus Satan. Like it was just neat. Like uh, that was kind of a fun little play. That
3: is creepy. Like that that corruption yeah. of, yeah, of the holy. Really, that's a really creepy scene.
0: Too. Mm-hmm. Really Did y'all like notice the one. Joker statue yes. in that scene? That's yeah. that was really totally weird. <laughs> I loved it. I,
3: never, I didn't understand that I mean, at all. Well, <laughs> like
0: we see, like several times
1: where uh, I, I think it comes to play with the that that idea of the demon embodying like uh, a corpse. That Karis is uh, is essentially a puppet for this demon right yeah and how does the gemini killer? what does the gemini killer do when he kills people he cuts their heads off and replaces them with a statue right in the opening sequence right before we get the title there's the 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 wind blowing into the church and we see the statue of christ open its eyes yeah right like it's we're constantly being reminded of statues of like simulacrums of icon like iconography of puppets of dolls um, and even, like, and the masks. voice of the Gemini killer right. is, like, is, is Chucky, like, which I kind of love even adds on to that. <laughs> yeah. And And so I think that's what they were going with with that. The statues are being changed in this church as well to become, like, demonic figures in the same way that, like, it's inhabiting people, it's inhabiting the imagery as
0: well. I'm fine with that in in Practice. concept. In concept it's it's the choice to make it's the choice to make the statue the Joker which is which I found particularly bizarre because it it just is the Joker. It's a pre it's a statue of a priest with the Joker's head and it's holding a knife and it, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know why like I I think that I think that your reading of that is is good and i i'm i'm down with it like there is a lot of that repeated imagery of of statues and stuff but like why the joker <laughs> well i think i think it's like uh why like batman
1: a deck of cards joker is the idea but no it, no it just, it's, it's the, the, the batman joker <laughs> yeah, though yeah. it's the yeah. batman, batman it's like joker like Jack Nicholson one, too. yeah. That's, like, that's yeah. an
3: interesting question. There is a, an element of this like chaotic mischief to the Gemini Killer,
0: absolutely. So
3: I can see some parallels there, but I hadn't thought about <laughs> them until you, it is totally random. It's singer, weird, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I sure the Gemini Killer is basically the Joker. Why not? But you know, <laughs> like uh, no, it's just it's just. I mean, it's it's nothing that li- is like lingered upon for too long of a time. Like it doesn't it doesn't like hurt anything in the movie but it's just like a real like a weird thing to like cut to that it's like that's just a statue of the joker dressed as a priest like why is this why is this in this uh this church like who put who put this there uh that was one of the tonal things that like briefly took me out of it are you ready to talk about the the exorcism at the end? Yes. I think we've pretty much yes. covered everything else because
3: I wanted to just briefly mention the story about the carp in the bathtub. Oh yes. Oh <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That was one of my favorite parts of this movie, always. The character building of that story. Mm-hmm. And just how weird and random it is.
0: Yeah, and how like it doesn't it doesn't really have an impact on the the core narrative of the film nor does it ever come back up again yeah. but it i feel like it's it's so perfectly illustrative of just, like, uh, Kinderman's kind of, like, frayed mental state. Like, on top of this whole thing with hunting this killer, also, like, his mother-in-law is staying with them, and she's been keeping a carp in the bathtub so she can cook it, you know? And he hasn't been able to bathe in three days because this goddamn carp is swimming around his bathtub. (laughs) can't
3: go home till it goes to sleep.
0: Right, exactly, because because if I see that thing swimming around, I will kill it, you know? I, I think it's really What's, good. Yeah,
1: it feels weird saying this, but it, it does, to, it, for me, it kind of grounds uh, the world a little bit because it is the kind of thing that is so strange uh that you wouldn't see in you almost wouldn't see it in fiction it gives that that sense of like it's just obscure enough that it's like yeah like i could see like myself like having a mother in law who would do something like that you know like, sure. like like something that weird <laughs> and it's nice because all the other monologues in this film are incredibly dark so to give us an opportunity to have a uh, like even even though it is still at the expense of our main character it is a more upbeat kind of weird monologue that puts us in that reality so when we're told the rest of these dark things i think it makes them more believable and it kind of encourages us to Mm -hmm. you know to trust that
0: those those horrible facts so much more
3: it lends some authenticity
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, so the exorcism that they tacked on to the end of this movie. I'll start out by saying I think that the way that they shot that sequence is cool. I wish it it wasn't in the movie. It hurts the movie for me. Oh, man. I love it.
2: I actually really love it. It's such a departure from the rest of the film that totally it doesn't mesh with the rest of at the film all, you at know, all at all but i don't mind that i i don't mind it taking a drastic left turn it almost feels like a cathartic release for the film mm-hmm. where it, like the whole rest of the film is so subdued and atmospheric that having that release of you know incredible in your face directness is
0: kind of welcome, in
2: my opinion.
0: See, I I disagree because I think that it's so clumsily set up that it deflates the weight of the character drama that has been building up to this point. This kind of mental and spiritual battle between kinderman and the the this demon the gemini killer we found the director's cut and we watched we watched the original ending and in bladdy's original version after the the possessed nurse goes to his house to try to kill his daughter he just goes back to the hospital calmly walks into the room with the uh, the, the Gemini killer. Asks the nurse to lock the door ask behind him. the nurse him. to lock the door behind him, pulls out his gun, and just shoots him to death. And then that's the end of the movie. And I think that there's something so much more, even though it, it might be considered somewhat anticlimactic, I think there's so, something so much more narratively satisfying about it because it's like his family has just been threatened and whether this is something supernatural or otherwise it's like that is the last straw for him and that it's like okay I have to put a stop to this no more fucking pussyfooting around no more listening to these these rambling monologues from this killer it's just like this is this has reached a point a breaking point walks in, murks him, that's it. I think that that is a a very satisfying finish to what has been building rather than introducing this new exorcist character who we know nothing about, has no character development in the movie, has well, two, two introductory scenes where a bird that he's keeping in a box by his window dies inexplicably and then a, a crucifix starts crying blood and then there's a scene of him praying in a church he has no interaction with any of the other characters in this movie and then after the nurse sequence at kinderman's house it just smash cuts to this priest it's walking down the hall towards the gemini killers (laughs) cell you know to do battle with him who the fuck is this guy why am i supposed to care about who he is why am i supposed to care about his spiritual warfare with this demon that ult- that ultimately ends in him just dying i think the the that scene and like this the like cool surreal stuff they do with it like the snakes and and him like being flung to the ceiling and like peeling the skin off of his back and stuff it all looks visually cool but it's very very out of place in this otherwise very grounded heavily thematic, like, spiritual character study. I felt it, it, doesn't, close it doesn't to fit. matching
1: the tone of the dream sequence. Because there's still that, like, that realm of, of like, uncertainty, that same surreal state you know like we we see the the ground separate and the the figures who have been trapped by the demon like like emerge and it felt very similar to me like when it disappears and the floor is just normal again like waking up but i do agree uh, i think maybe the the priest is in the
0: exorcist too no, no, no. <laughs> oh, all right. he was—he was—he was created and introduced. Wow. For re, okay. with reshoots. I just assumed yeah. that, like, no. there's like, okay, Whoa. it's from
2: the second one or no. something. I agree with that stuff. One thing I will say that I think works with that scene is when uh, George C. Scott is rammed against the wall in almost a crucifix position. And he's saying, "I believe in uh, suffering and injustice yeah, and all mind. of this." He stuff. believes
0: in slime and stink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> slime and stink. Uh, yeah,
2: and uh, I think fun. that, in particular, adds to it. You know, tonally, sure, the scene is a mismatch, but I think the movie is better for I, having so that. I think scene. that there's... whatever you're
3: saying is that you feel like that that faith-based struggle. Is self evidently resolved by him walking in and just taking out. Well,
0: I think almost no. I think it. I think it's it's made unimportant. Okay. His his belief and his faith ultimately doesn't matter. It doesn't come into play. It doesn't come into play. He's like, ah, into play. He,
3: been threatened. I'm done.
0: Yeah. It it's it be it comes down to a moment of action for him, mm. and there's not there's not that sort of moment of like accepting that. He believes, and his faith is restored because of what he has seen he opts from out this of playing demon. The game. Yeah. Right, exactly. He it doesn't
3: disintegrating. It he doesn't pragmatic. It doesn't matter. Right.
0: right, whether he believes it or not, after all of the shit that he's seen and experienced, he just says, "I have to do something." Mm-hmm. And the fact that he can just walk into that room and shoot Brad Dorif and that be it, and not be like thrown against the wall and like acted upon in a supernatural way that it's just as simple as walking in and being like I'm done with your bullshit boom like I think that that that, that is it's it's for me I think it's a more powerful punctuation mark on on the drama because ultimately Though Kinderman's struggle with his faith is a big part of the movie, that it doesn't really come down to that at the very end. And and I, I appreciate how kind of like simple it is. And it makes sense for his character too. Like after how much he's been through and how emotionally damaged he is, it's just like this is, you know, it's beyond the pale. Fuck it. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go kill him. And that's gonna be that. You pitch a very good argument
1: for, uh, the, the director's cut. I, uh, I, I do, I do think that there's, that, that there is a, potentially, like, a more, like, academically powerful ending there. Um, I also agree with Ben's point about, like, like, I think that there's just more, like, gratification and catharsis in that, but, I mean, also, it's more, it's more, it's more like, climactic like, for sure. I, know, to a certain degree, it, like, absolutely... I I definitely gain that, but I also see that, like, it, it is sort of a ballsier move to have him just go in there and shoot him, like, well, from a writer's standpoint, but. Uh, and the, the ending, I think, works, would, would probably be even more, would feel even more natural with Japanese dubbing. <laughs> um, like, there, there's just, there are a few moments where, like, it cut, it, like, quickly cuts the demon's eyes, like, and it's, like, super close up, and, like, they go wide, and it goes red, and I, I could just already hear, like, Nani! Like, kind of yeah. stuff, well, like, like, I was just bright, like.
3: like, serpent yellow with mm-hmm, red veins. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> like, like, Fist the North Star, like, sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, whoa, like, what's going on here? Uh. But I love that kind of thing, so that was, uh, you know, I don't, I, I normally wouldn't mind it, uh, but it is, it is quite out there, I, I wonder if there is room for, like, just, a little middle ground between the two like if we could get the the monologue about the, the slime monologue and then have them shoot them, and a little just a little less of the the crazy stuff that could have been Well see you know, here's maybe... here's
0: my here's my thing too i think that it almost does the idea of exorcism a disservice to shoehorn it into the last 5 minutes of a film anyway mm. because if you look at Friedkin's original exorcist and if you look at, like, actual historic records of real-life exorcisms, uh, just the act, whether you believe in, you know, spiritual warfare or not, an exorcism is a marathon, not a sprint. So much of the first Exorcist movie is these two priests, like, for hours and days days being worn down by this incarnation of evil and persisting and just like the the toll that it takes on them mentally and emotionally and spiritually like they're trying to pry this creature from this young girl's body and i think that like that is much more impactful when you give it the necessary time, and the exorcism in this movie is literally the last five minutes yeah, of damn the movie. Fine. well,
2: and I, I think you make a really good point. I think you're overstating it a little in the original Exorcist, because I think the original Exorcist is definitely a slow burn. Yeah. In that, like, the exorcism doesn't start until the second half of the movie at the least. But,
1: but know, it's still, but still it's still the jump. second. It's they're, they're, still, like, still
2: given more time. It's still the second I
1: mean,
0: half of the movie. It is also <laughs>
1: largely implied, like there are time jumps, where the priests are like taking breaks and stuff. Right, that, like it is over the course of days or hours. Like it is, it is still like a stretched out. It's broadcast. a slow burn. But like, it's, like, like over the course of like the film, like it, we're we're prepped to believe it is over a longer span. of yeah, time. there's
0: a lot of there's a lot of buildup to it for sure. But it is still given like the bulk of the second half yeah. of that film. And
2: I think I think the the priest character in this one is fairly unnecessary totally but I think it's
3: the only source of gore that we get
2: yes yeah right
3: and those effects are cool like I said
0: said, they spent four million dollars on that exorcism (laughs) scene (laughs) that is the last five minutes of the movie like it looks it looks very good it's very well done but it's so tonally disparate from the rest of the movie that it doesn't uh, at least for me like it doesn't feel right it's like I, I think i think the sequence where
2: george c scott is crucified once again and you know states his beliefs works he's great in that scene super well you know i think the the priest itself you know that element of the sequence doesn't work but i think the george c scott element works super well and it adds some depth to what you know is more subdued in the director's cut and i think it adds stakes where with the director's cut it almost feels in my opinion a little anticlimactic because you're just killing a
0: demon immediately i agree but that's what i like about it i think that i think that it adds more explicit depth i think that it is more explicit in what it's saying but i don't think that the the original ending of the director's cut is devoid of depth i think it's just there's just more that you have to read into it it you have to do you have certainly, you, you certainly. as the viewer you as the viewer have to do but more but i think of the, the, work. the stakes of the
2: demon and the demonic sure. element is so much Greater in the theatrical cut for sure because you see its power more right you and know. power
3: and and George C Scott's like being held against the wall and he's having to speak with so much force spit is flying out of his mouth and you can see like how much yeah. control it has and I performance
0: think, wise it's great I,
3: th- I think I see, I really like the director's cut in the sense that you do like you can bring more to your interpretation of it and I really what I really like about the theatrical cut is the way that it it highlights the sacrificial act of Kinderman killing Karis. and yeah. I really liked that part of that scene as well it is in the director's cut but it's again Well the they, didn't, that you, like, they didn't they didn't have
0: they after. didn't have Jason Miller for the director's cut so that yeah there's something added in that like Karras takes control of his body long enough to allow Kinderman to kill him and end it and like I think that's like i it. think I think that when you're when you're adding like the 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 Karis character to the story that like yeah sure that that might provide more weight in that like he is sort of winning his Karras is winning his own spiritual battle in that moment in. Reclaiming his body long enough to make the same sacrifice that he makes at the end of the first Exorcist, like the sacrifice of his own life to get rid of the demon. I, I think there's there's for sure something to be said for that. I it's think what is also
3: it, interesting that I mean, Kinderman is when he's shooting Jason Miller, it's different than if yeah. he's shooting Brad Dourif. Like absolutely, that was his friend that he loved, that he is now. Putting out of his misery. It's more
0: of a sacrifice that he has to make. And and I, I think that, that like there's absolutely something to be said for that. I think for me what it really comes down to is that I don't think that when William Peter Blatty set out to make this film, he obviously was not trying to make another exorcist film. Right. It's the studio that demanded that he make an exorcist right, he didn't film. not want
3: to call this the exorcist No, he yeah,
0: wanted he to call, call it Legion, it, yeah. yeah. Um, and and just because there are some of the same characters, like, in his novel and the original cut, there is no exorcism. Mm. So it is not an exorcist you know story, and I think that there's just a a tonal disparity in what he what the, what the artist's intention was and what he was going for, and what he was forced to do because of the studio. I think if you're looking at this as sort of a standalone thing that is not The Exorcist, I think the director's cut is far more successful if you're going with the studio and are insistent upon this thing being the exorcist, then yeah, you know, having, having a big climactic special effects, heavy scene, you know, and, and, uh, a, a great character moment from George C. Scott, like, yeah, okay, sure. I think it's, it's just like, what do you want out of this movie? And for me, I, I found myself wanting, more of the original vision because there's so much of that present in this film. And that's the stuff that I find. So the most compelling, the, the character drama, you know, the, the slow burn, the dread stuff like that. That's what, that's what like really I found gripping. And it's like all of the exorcism stuff is incidental. Mm -hmm. I think
1: going back to my footnote for the previous scene, I think because in the director's cut that scene becomes the climax of the film like that is our high stake tension release sequence before he goes and kills before he kills the gemini killer for the end of the director's cut to work i i feel like revisions would need to be made to that scene to to give it that sense of weight and power that it doesn't really have because we get our weird like our like our weird quick shots and like that's just I think we can get like some of our catharsis, uh, our, our fantastical, um, not even necessarily like, like exorcism, like fantastical stuff, but like just a little bit more liveliness and a little bit more like zhuzh in that in to get it, to give us a good climax, like before, before he does have that final moment. Well,
0: of, of I breaking. think, I think what's interesting is that in the director's cut, there is one additional shot. ...added to that scene that I think provides a lot of context that makes that scene weightier in, actually, like, as a climax in the director's cut, uh, because in, you know, uh, after pulling his, uh, the daughter away from the shears, like, the possessed nurse tries to, like, strangle uh, Kinderman to death, and in the theatrical cut... She just kind of stops and like falls over to the floor, and it's like we don't really understand why. And she makes some growly demon noises, right? And, well, in, and
2: immediately cuts to to, to the, the exorcism.
0: Yeah. But in the director's cut, when she releases him, there's a reverse shot back to Kinderman, and he says, all he says is, uh, with kind of surprise, he says, "Damien." the weight that that adds is that the reason she stopped attacking him and kind of like went back to her catatonic state is because Karis regained control enough to stop the demon from attacking him. That Karis, in that moment saved Kinderman and allows Kinderman to go back and, and shoot him. You know, I think even just that one, that one shot does provide more context. I mean, like I said, the the director's cut is kind of anticlimactic in in the yes. ending. I kind of like that, but I I understand why I think people I think wouldn't. it does a good
2: job of maintaining tonal continuity. Mm-hmm. But as someone who respects wild tonal left turns,
0: I got to respect be wild tonal. Left I mean, I don't. I don't yeah. disrespect wild tonal left turns, but it depends on the movie that it's in, and mm-hmm. a left turn like that can be to the film's detriment. Make or break when it's when what it's doing before that is so effective. Well, I think it's done well enough that it's not
2: bad, even if it's tonally inconsistent, and you know,
0: arguably. It's a not bad, campy, but campy. It's hokey you know, in ways but... that the rest of the film is, just, is not. Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, I don't mind it. I don't mind it because I think the movie is so subdued up to that point that like having a bit of camp is welcome. The reason it works is because of George C. Scott's performance. You know, you can disregard the add-on. Priest.
0: I can't though. Yeah. It's so. That's such <laughs> yeah. a like. That's such but. an enormous part of that scene. And like, while George C. Scott's performance is incredible. The, the priest, I don't think, gives a, a, as good of a, perfor- a performance. In fact, I uh, I even made a note that I thought that he was, like, fucking channeling Emperor Palpatine in that scene where is like where, like, where he's reading... Use your anger! Yeah, he was doing that same kind of voice, like, while he's reading the exorcism, like, at the demon. And it's like, yeah, it's fucking campy and hokey as shit. And One and funny part the
3: book blows up and it looks like confetti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: right. All of these things, all of these things, I would enjoy in a different setting. But like when I've been so captivated by the the story and the drama of this film and these characters' performances, like when you want to throw that in in the last five minutes, like okay, it's a it's a very bold fucking thing to do, but. You know, I, I think that I think that the the integrity of the story suffers for it. Not terribly. It is only the last five minutes of the film, you know, but uh, like the the movie's still good otherwise. But, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and slap a rating on that. I like most of this movie a lot. I like most of this movie a whole lot. Uh, I'm going to give it a strong four out of five. There's some just like really, really incredible performances, like really nice, slow burn, just like dread filled tension. I, yeah, I I think this is a, a, I would say probably underrated film.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm going to uh, go a similar route. Uh, I'm going to put my score uh, sort of between what film I'm scoring is sort of something between the director's cut and the release. Largely because I I really enjoyed, like, our conversation there at the end and thinking about the concepts brought in of just having him walk in and shoot him. And I I think that there's something, like, really, like, compelling about that. And there are some neat thematic concepts that we don't see very often in film uh, expressed there. Uh, I'm gonna give it a 4.5. I think uh, that this movie was... In very small ways, potentially, like a, a, a victim of like some some studio interference, but like to still bring something out that powerful for it. And again, like I, I got a lot of gratification out of the the wacky like final sequence. Um, anyway, it's still fun. Uh, but no, it, it does it does detract a little bit. But no, uh, four point five. The the I'm I would be happy to watch this movie again. You know, like down the road, and uh, it's 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 near perfect. There's a, there's a lot of great stuff.
2: Yeah, well, I I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5. I think this movie is such a slow burn to the point where I feel like it drags at a few times. While George C. Scott and Brad Dorf both give, you know, amazing performances, I think it does drag a little bit, but I respect so much in the theatrical cut that the slow burn you know, leads to a sort of powder keg, an explosive, cathartic finale that I respect the ballsiness to do. Something so campy and something that does not fit the tone of the rest of the movie, but I think works on its own because it's so drastically different. I think this is a great movie. I think this is a movie. Deserving of more attention than it gets.
0: Sarah, your closing thoughts and rating.
3: All right. Yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna rate just the theatrical cut, and I'm really intrigued to watch the director's cut at some point. I think in isolation, I'd, I'd really like to see it fresh. And um, I think my favorite things about this movie that I remembered were just the world building and the atmosphere. Yeah. And I really like some of the film technique, some of that like more clinical. Um, distance, sort of uh, the camera as the audience, kind of technique of the movie. Uh, but I also love the Ed Flanders and George C. Scott relationship, like that Father Dyer Kinderman relationship and the character development. Um, and I think I'm going to go with a four out of five.
0: All right. Well, that will give The Exorcist three. An average of 4.1 out of 5 pods. Thank you, Sarah, for, uh, for suggesting that we watch this. It's been on my list for a long time. And I'm really glad to finally get a chance to watch it. And I think this has been a really good discussion. So um, thank you for your excellent curation. Well, Indeed. Thanks
3: for sharing it with me. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Right. Cleve, uh, let's do a word from our sponsor, why yes, don't sir. we?
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, this week uh, we have a nice, a nice sponsor for us. Um, a nice relevant sponsor. Um, uh, you ever been tired of heads? Because I know I have been. Like, just fuck them, right? You don't need them. It's, it's a lot of extra space. Sometimes you get migraines. I, I, I'm, I'm done with it, frankly. So uh, we're, we're bringing you this week. Uh, skizzle and bops. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, extra scissors. Uh, clap those heads right the fuck off. And, uh, you know, be, just be done with it. Get it over with as quickly as possible. Excuse me, right. Bob's ex- ex-
0: <laughs> coming
1: soon to a theater
0: near you. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, next week, uh, it is my pick, and it's another episode that we've already recorded. Uh, we're going to be talking about the 2014 mockumentary, What We Do in the Shadows, uh, we've been all watching the the television show, and uh, I wanted to sort of revisit my nostalgia for that uh, very, very funny movie. It's a nice, fun, lighthearted episode, so come back next week and listen to our thoughts on that. Spoiler alert, we do fun things in the shadows. Uh, oh, <laughs> indeed. <laughs>
1: Hopefully that um, doesn't set
0: expectations too high. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, if you've got high expectations, then you can head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod or on letterbox.com slash PodPeoplePod for a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ozzy slanging them quarantine tweets
1: <laughs>
2: i'm on twitter at mr sheets and i'm occasionally tweeting for light arc studio
1: as we continue to push out uh, the next big uh, patch uh, for it stares
0: back content update that's
1: right stay tuned it is on the horizon you can also see some of my uh, lovely lovely paintings on ArtStation if you search cleveland Mosier. uh c-l-e-v-e-l-a-n-d-m-o-s-h-e-r uh yeah look up some cool spooky portraits and uh if you want to have a spooky portrait painted of your own uh feel free to contact me as well uh, at the listed email i'm uh commissions are open right now or as a time of recording and i'd love to paint something for you so thank you so much
0: sarah do you have anything that you'd like to plug where people can find you your social media anything like that
3: I'm just a fortunate guest with a low social media presence. Nice. If you want I'm to jealous, look at honestly. Pictures of like turtles that I find on hikes. I'm on Instagram. Ooh, that that <laughs> sounds
1: great. That, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Instagram. Yeah. I'm to look at turtles
0: you found on hikes. <laughs> sounds like fun.
3: I'm on Instagram at Cyclone seventy
0: eight. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Well, Sarah, thank you again so much for joining us. This was a delight. We'd be happy to have you back anytime. And uh I know in our talks before the show you have some other movies, uh that uh, you would like to watch and talk about, so hopefully we'll be able to have you back real soon. My pleasure. Um, Because I'm excited about some of those movies you mentioned. Uh, All right, well, everybody, stay safe and demon-free, and tune back next week to find out what we do in the shadows. Don't get your head chopped off. Hey!